As humans, it's inherent in us to explore. Uh, we're driven by curiosity and we're driven by wanting to understand the world around us. It's the unknown. Space remains the great unknown. We're inside a minute now, T-minus 50 seconds and counting. It's Christmas Day 2021, around lunchtime. While most of us are just starting to smell the turkey wafting from the oven, there are 10,000 people across the world anxiously waiting with bated breath. And the command will be issued to ignite the solid rocket boosters. The James Webb Space Telescope will be on its way. In French Guyana, near the equator, a rocket is ready to launch. Inside that rocket is a payload 25 years and $10 billion in the making. If this launch fails, it's all been for nothing. T-minus 30 seconds in count. We had all kinds of technical concerns about the rocket in the 11th hour. Standing by for terminal count. It's spectacular if a rocket explodes, isn't it? And we know that that has happened, but actually very, very few of them do. Every launch has risk. You know, occasionally rockets end up in the ocean. But the team have done their homework. Everything has been checked over a thousand times. Five, four, three, two, and then lift off. Decollage, lift off from a tropical rainforest to the edge of time itself. The rocket leaves Earth's atmosphere, beginning its 29-day million-mile journey. James Webb begins a voyage back to the birth of the universe. Everyone on Earth can breathe a sigh of relief and pop open the champagne or tuck into Christmas dinner. Ah, really excited. <laughs> a little bit hard to believe that we'd finally got there in some ways. I mean, rationally, you know that you you will and, and, and that all the work has been done, but... I think on launch day, you get a little bit the less rational reaction of just, wow, we've actually done it. It's going to be launched now. <laughs> it was, yeah, personally rewarding and amazing to watch the launch. And the launch wasn't just successful. It was amazingly successful. It all worked and uh, we're, we're pretty happy about it. One of the most nail-biting parts of the mission is over, but its journey is only just beginning. On board that rocket is the James Webb Telescope, which is going to revolutionize our understanding of the universe. You know, it's a technology marvel, really, the most complex thing that I've ever worked on, I suspect that most people ever worked on. It was a fascinating experience to see how 10,000 people around the world could perform as an orchestra in symphony, if you will, to produce something like this. This time on Future Lab, the podcast, brought to you by Randox and the Goodwood Festival of Speed, join me, Lucy Johnston, for a journey into the cosmos, exploring how technology can help us reach for the stars, and then how those stars, in turn, can inspire us here on Earth. It's amazing. I mean, there have been marriages and births of uh, children and, you know, we all look a lot older than we did in the beginning, And uh, but it's been great.
To start with, why does a telescope need to be in space? And what exactly is it looking for? To tell us all about it, we're joined by Dr. Matt Greenhouse, project scientist on the James Webb Space Telescope. He actually started his career more interested in what's beneath us. I started out as a geologist. I, I went to the University of Arizona in Tucson, which is a big center for astronomy. The, the town is literally surrounded by mountaintops with observatories on them. But while he was there, he couldn't help but be inspired by his magnificent surroundings. I'm always fascinated by the night sky. I, I, I happen not to live in a dark area now. But uh, whenever I am in a dark area, the sky is awe-inspiring. I remember one day when I was working, I had to go up to one of the observatories at night to fix something, and I did. And after I was done, I, I went outside and I just laid back on the hood of my truck, you know, laid back on the windshield and looked at the sky. And I thought, well, you know, someday I'm going to come back here as an astronomer. And I did. After a few years in geology, Matt decided to become a planetary geologist. He went to graduate school at the University of Wyoming and began a new trajectory, ending up on a fledgling project at NASA. I joined the project in 1997, and when it was, uh, you know, just a whiteboard idea. And uh, it ended up encompassing, you know, my whole career. This new telescope was dreamed up to fill in the gaps in our knowledge that previous telescopes couldn't help us with. Telescopes like the Hubble, which launched back in 1990. Hubble can only see back about one billion years. And then there was the COBE telescope, which can see the first light of the universe. So we needed a mission to connect the dots, if you will, between that oldest light in the universe and what Hubble could see when the universe was about a billion years old. And that gap was uh, known at the time, sometimes still is, called the cosmic dark zone. It was poorly studied, still is, because we haven't had the right type of telescope in space to study it. This cosmic dark zone is especially interesting because it's when the very first stars and galaxies formed from the matter thrown out from the Big Bang. Stars form from clouds of molecular gas that collapse onto themselves by self-gravity. And when the clouds begin to collapse onto themselves, the pressure inside the cloud goes up. And so the temperature goes up. Not unlike what happens when you fill your bicycle tire at the gas station, it gets warm. Well, in the cores of these clouds, it gets really, really warm to the point where uh, nuclear fusion can begin. Those first stars eventually died, and some exploded as supernova, launching out materials that would become second-generation stars, and around them, planets like ours. Chemical elements are forged both in the star when it's alive, elements up to as heavy as iron, and then even heavier elements are forged when the supernova form. Really, everything we are is literally star stuff. Heavy elements like gold that you might be wearing in a ring right now is made in supernova explosions. Those are the basics, and JWST will study uh, that process in great detail. But that's not all this telescope can do. 
It'll have four main scientific instruments on it, designed to do all kinds of things. It's like a telescopic Swiss Army knife. It's geared toward observing the early universe, but it will do lots and lots of other science just the way Hubble does. It will study how stars form in our own galaxy. It will study how planets form around other stars. Today, we know that essentially all stars have planets, and we've identified nearly 5,000 exoplanets to this point, uh, with the implication that there are literally billions of habitable worlds in our galaxy. We don't know that they're inhabited, but we know how to search for life on them by studying the chemical composition of their atmospheres with spectroscopy. So the search for extraterrestrial life is no longer the stuff of science fiction. It's very much a uh, major science objective of NASA. So, you know, life can be in a lot of different places, and we're going to start looking in all of them. It should be a remarkable scientific tool, just as Hubble was, and it will likely rewrite all the textbooks like uh, Hubble did. But to do this comes with some serious challenges. After the break. This podcast is brought to you by Randox, a company that's been advancing the field of medical diagnostics since 1982. And over the series, we'll be chatting to some of the people who've been making it happen. My name's Mark Ruddock, and I'm the Clinical Studies Manager for Randox Laboratories. Mark's been with Randox for over 20 years. A really long time indeed, yes. Currently, Mark develops diagnostics tests for various diseases. So I'm responsible for setting up clinical trials, monitoring clinical trials, collating data, and, you know, trying to develop new tests for particular diseases. One of the diseases Mark focuses on is bladder cancer, which has a higher mortality rate than other types of cancers like kidney, stomach or ovarian. This is mainly because it often gets diagnosed too late. You know, early bladder cancer is very treatable. Although the ratio of men to women, it's three to one more men get bladder cancer than women, more women die of bladder cancer because the treatment is delayed. Randox wants to help clinicians find a better way to diagnose bladder cancer as early as possible. We'll check in with Mark later in the episode to hear why bladder cancer is so hard to identify. But for now, back to the Future Lab podcast. For the James Webb Telescope to peer into the far reaches of the universe, there were some major hurdles to overcome. When we first conceived this mission at the whiteboard level, we realized that we had two major problems that almost stopped us dead in our tracks. One was we needed a mirror that is bigger in diameter than the biggest rocket. But the other one was that we had to cool this enormous observatory. The web is about six and a half metric tons. We had to cool it to this enormously low temperature, you know, 50 degrees above absolute zero. Then and now, there is no mechanical refrigerator powerful enough to cool such a large thing. So we had to solve that problem. While space is significantly chillier than Earth, the James Webb Telescope needs to be even colder. 
We'll get to why in a moment. And it turns out the best way to do that is exactly what we do at the beach. We take a sun umbrella. And so we realized that we could deploy a giant sun shield to block that heat. And then the web would cool passively to the cold darkness of space to the desired temperature. Because the telescope is sitting in a specific orbit, heat from the Earth, Moon and Sun is all coming from the same direction. So you can block it all with one shield. But this is easier said than done. The sun shield was the highest risk part of the mission. So in terms of, you know, we don't nail bite because we do so much testing that we're very, very confident when we launch things. But this was the highest risk part of the mission. It is literally the size of a tennis court. And each it has five layers. Each layer is made of a heat-resistant plastic-like material called Kapton, thinner than a human hair. And each layer has a special curved shape that itself is a quilt of about 50 pieces with maybe 7,000 inches of seaming, not with needle and thread, but with uh, thermal spot welds. It has to deploy into a special shape, you know, to fold up inside the rocket. You can't very well have a tennis court sized sheet flapping around for launch, so it had to be folded up five times, which took a month to do properly so it could fit inside the rocket and be able to unfold itself perfectly once it had been launched. Once it's in space, there's no room for error. There are 40 deployable structures and 178 release mechanisms that all had to work perfectly for this sun shield to unfold. And with its five layers and its special shape, it has uh, an SPF of greater than a million. So if you had this on the beach, you would be very, very well protected. And it's crucial to enabling JWST to, to achieve the very low temperature that's needed. Now that the telescope can be cooled, a hard question for the team. What scientific instruments do you put on it? NASA examined proposals from all over the world, and working on these collaborations became an important part of Matt's job. So first we had to decide what type of instrumentation would be needed to do the science. Then I became the lead scientist for the instrument payload and that was just a fascinating, wonderful career for me. All the international participation in JWST was in my area except the rocket. So there was a lot of schlepping around. I racked up a number of miles on United Airlines equivalent to one round trip to the Sun-Earth L2 point, literally. But I made all kinds of friends and relationships and got to work deeply with the European Space Agency and the Canadian Space Agency and all of their contractors. And so it was a very rewarding experience. There were lots of instrument approaches and technologies that were suggested, but we had to select ones that were buildable, that were a good match to the science requirements and that were appropriately low technical risk that we believe that we could do it successfully. One of the most interesting instruments is the European Space Agency multi-object spectrometer. It's the first multi-object spectrometer 
And closer to home for you all is the MIRI instrument, which was led by the European Advanced Technology Centre in Edinburgh, Scotland. The MIRI instrument, the UK-led instrument, will literally give humanity its first high-definition view of the infrared universe. For the very first time, we will see the infrared universe with the same detail that Hubble has shown us the optical and UV universe. Let's hear more about this mid-infrared instrument, MIRI, which will give us this new look at the universe. One of the things we said was, there really needs to be a mid-infrared instrument on this mission because the mid-infrared science is going to be so exciting. This is Professor Gillian Wright, the European Principal Investigator for the MIRI instrument. I used to really enjoy looking at the stars with my dad when he walked me off to the girl guys meetings that I used to attend. And he, my dad had learned how to find his way by the stars. So he taught me how, and that was just something that amazed me, that it didn't matter where you were in the world, you could always work out what direction to go just by looking at the stars. MIRI is the instrument looking furthest into the infrared spectrum, a wavelength of light we can't see with the naked eye because that's how you can spot those early stars. Infrared is going to give us a piece of the sort of missing puzzle about how stars and galaxies formed. So that's one thing that's really exciting. So we we kind of can study things about the Big Bang and we can study galaxies all the way back in time up to a certain point. But there's a gap and we can't quite join that up because we haven't been able to see the first stars and galaxies ever before. And they're very faint and they're very red because they're so far away, they're very red shifted. So you you need a big telescope in space to be able to go hunting for them. And that's one of the exciting things we will be doing. So that's exciting. And at the same time, I think The other thing that is really exciting, that excites me, is understanding much more about the chemistry of planets and how planets form around stars. And certainly Mary has some very unique capabilities that will help us to study what the molecules are, what the chemistry is in the planets. We know they form in very dusty regions and with Mary we'll be able to look through that dust and understand more about them. But why are these stars in the infrared spectrum? Okay, so because everything in the universe is moving away from everything else, the universe is expanding, what that does is it redshifts the light. So it makes the light appear redder when things are further away because they're moving away from you. And so the first stars, they had only hydrogen in them. So they, when they started to burn hydrogen, they were massively bright in the ultraviolet. But because they're so far away, that ultraviolet light appears as infrared light. So we need to look in the infrared to study them. This is called redshift. Things shift into the red part of the spectrum if they're moving away from you. It's a little bit like when a car races past you, the sound changes and gets lower in pitch. That's because of the Doppler effect, sound waves changing because an object is moving away from you. Light waves change too, depending on if the source is moving towards or away from you. 
but looking this far into the infrared spectrum is extremely complicated. In the mid-infrared, it's really difficult to do that from the ground because the Earth's atmosphere absorbs the mid-infrared radiation from the universe and so it just never gets to us. So we have to be up there in space. We're the only mid-infrared instrument because it's so difficult and one of the reasons it's so difficult is that we have to be much colder than the rest of the observatory. We would perceive infrared radiation as warmth and so you have to be colder than the things you're trying to look at. Otherwise, all our detectors would see is their own self-emission. So although all of JWST is very cold, the MIRI instrument is another 33 degrees colder still. So our detectors work at a temperature called 7 Kelvin, which is just 7 degrees above the temperature where all the atoms stop vibrating. So that's why it's called absolute zero. Absolutely everything stops and we're just 7 degrees above that. So that's a very big challenge. And to do that, we had a special fridge, a cooler, that was developed by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. But then everything else, all the optics and the wires and the electronics have to be designed so that the cooler can cool them. So it's quite a complicated design process to fit everything in that we wanted. But what can we really learn from looking at these early stars? Their size how massive they are is really important, how bright they are. I think some simple things like, are they a single star or are they a little baby cluster of a few stars that all formed at the same time? Because certainly in the nearby universe, we see stars forming in clusters. At that level, we don't really know if that's how the first stars formed. So that's this question of, were the first things that formed stars or little clusters of stars or somehow baby galaxies? And where did black holes come into it? Because most galaxies we look at now have got black holes in them. So when did they first start appearing and how did they affect that whole picture of how it all worked in the very early universe? Miri can also tell what things are made from by looking at their light signature. So Miri, because we had only one instrument, it not only takes images, it can do what we call spectroscopy. So it splits the light up into its tiny little constituent wavelengths like making a rainbow of mid-infrared light, but in a lot more detail. And molecules and atoms have unique signatures when you make their spectrum. What we can do is, for example, we can look at the shape of that spectrum and tell whether there are ices present, whether there are things like methane present. And all of these molecules that are kind of very fundamental, simple molecules, we'll be able to study whether they're there and how much of them is there. So I think we will learn about organic chemistry in different circumstances. Some of what we want to look at are organic type molecules, the very precursors. Looking for life, I think that's a whole different, much harder question. Understanding more about the chemistry is is a sort of first baby step on the way. Future Lab is brought to you by Randox. Earlier in the episode, we met Mark, who's been working on a better diagnostic test for bladder cancer. One of the main reasons why bladder cancer has a higher mortality rate than other cancers is because of late diagnosis. 
Women, for example, are often misdiagnosed with a urinary tract infection because its symptoms are so similar to bladder cancer. Symptoms of bladder cancer are very non-specific, but one of the main symptoms is hematuria, which is basically blood in the urine. And the other symptoms are things like the frequent urge to urinate, burning sensation during urination, and lower back pain. And many of these can be mistaken for normal UTIs. And unfortunately, in women especially, this can delay treatment. When a patient does receive the proper investigation into their symptoms, it can be quite invasive. One test they might need is a cystoscopy. So the current methodology is a cystoscopy, which basically is a camera which is inserted up the urethra into the bladder. And basically the urologist actually checks inside the bladder for tumours. As you can appreciate, it is a very invasive procedure and it's very uncomfortable for the patient. 90% of patients with bladder cancer will have a recurrence in 15 years. This means they'll have to be monitored and tested regularly, which can be extremely taxing on a patient. It also makes bladder cancer the most expensive cancer for the NHS to treat. So, Randox got to work on a new test that would be less invasive and much cheaper. We'll find out more about that later. The James Webb Space Telescope will revolutionise our understanding of the universe, but it's costing a whopping $10 billion. So how do we justify launching all this money into space when there are plenty of problems that need fixing back on Earth? Matt Greenhouse again. When we do projects like this, there are typically lots and lots of what we call spin-off applications of the technologies that we develop. And on the web, this has already occurred. Some of the optics technologies that we developed for the web have uh, found their way into medical eye surgery techniques. Some of the technologies developed by the web are now applied to measuring the shape of the human eye. We've developed technologies for measuring very precise shapes of large structures in the presence of vibration, and that has enormous industrial applications that are already occurring. Some of the specialized electronics that we developed for the web, something called application-specific integrated circuits. So society gets back much more than it expends in doing projects like this. Science is, is all joined up. So if we understand more about the universe, we understand more about everything. And it's where we came from. It's what we're all made of. Everything we're made of, everything on Earth, it was formed from stardust, from those very first stars. They started the process. But it's also more detailed things. If we understand more about how other planetary systems form from looking at them, then we understand more about how our solar system formed. If we understand more about chemistry in the atmosphere of other planets, we can understand more about the chemistry in the atmosphere of our planet. And we certainly care about that because it's very close to home. And projects like this can inspire the next generation of scientists and lead to collaborations between countries all over the world. There aren't many projects out there that inspire people 
the way the web does and the way Hubble did. Projects like the web seem to accrete interest from all countries and agencies that are capable of doing space research. If it were a simple industrial project, and there are many industrial projects that have the same type of price tag as the web has, it would be much harder to build the kind of partnerships that we have built. And it wouldn't inspire individual people. There are generations of scientists that are inspired by projects like this. So after 25 years on a project, what lessons does Matt have for the rest of us? One thing I've learned is don't be afraid to take on the impossible. Have confidence to take on major, major challenges. Don't go for what's easy. Go for what's important, no matter how hard it is. And the web has really demonstrated that. Many of NASA and the projects of our partner agencies, they're really, really tough projects. Maybe not for the faint of heart, but one has to be bold to achieve great discovery. And with a good engineering approach and a good scientific approach, there's really nothing impossible. So for now, after 25 long years, we just have a few more months to wait before we can see what this baby can really do. This summer, we'll be conducting those observations and, you know, by fall, you should start to see a lot of exciting results hit the streets, if you will. What's a few weeks and actually it's kind of scarily close now. <laughs> so all that's left to say is watch this space. Thank you, Matt Greenhouse and Gillian Wright. This was Future Lab, brought to you by Randox and the Goodwood Festival of Speed. I'm Lucy Johnston. If you haven't, please do take a moment to rate and follow the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. bladder cancer tests are not only expensive but painful and can lead to infection. To make matters worse, people with bladder cancer often go undiagnosed until late into the illness. Randox has been working on a way to solve these issues. We are developing a urine-based test. This non-invasive test can be easily administered to those who might be at risk for bladder cancer, making it much better for the patient. It's a cost-effective way to monitor patients on an ongoing basis. We look for particular proteins which are secreted from the epithelial cells inside the bladder. Based on these results, a patient can be referred for further investigations or monitoring. This new test could help patients who are at risk avoid painful surgical procedures and make sure they receive the right care as early as possible. 
It also means more people can get tested in a cost-effective way, so mortality rates for bladder cancer can be improved. To learn more about the work Randox does, visit randoxhealth.com.